We are in our series on Song of Solomon, and the series is called My Love. And we've been talking through the book of Song of Solomon. The king, Solomon, wrote three books in the Old Testament. He wrote Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, if you've got it in your Bible. He wrote Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And it follows a, actually a pretty good progression. Solomon starts out with a lot of passion. He realizes, I need some wisdom. Like, all that passion gets you in trouble sometimes. And then the last book is, my life is meaningless because I've lived for passion and wisdom. I've lived for trying to do the right thing and trying to feel the right things, and I'm just miserable. And I've realized that really the end of life is just to be loved by God, to fear God and be loved by him. That's basically what Solomon realizes when he gets to the book of Ecclesiastes. But this is at the beginning of Solomon's kind of reign and kingdom. If you remember, King Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He wasn't a good guy when it came to relationships, and yet he wrote this book on relationship. God asked him to, and God kept it in his word so that we would have a picture of what a relationship in marriage looks like and what a marriage relationship with God might look like. And so he he kept this book of all the things, and Solomon wrote all kinds of stuff. He was the wisest man to ever live. He asked, when God asked him, I'll give you anything, Solomon said, I just want wisdom. I just want to know to do the right thing here that it would work out well. And God gave him that wisdom. And Solomon used that wisdom to manipulate everything in the world so he could become the most powerful, peaceful king probably ever to exist. And as soon as he died, his sons completely destroyed everything. You see... We, we, we love to take Bible people and make them like these heroes, and they're not. The hero of every story, the hero of this book is not this incredible marriage. It's not this man and this woman. The hero of this book is God himself. Every person in Scripture is a broken, flawed, shattered person who has to make a decision whether they're going to live for themselves or whether they're going to live for God, whether they're going to love themselves or whether they're going to love God, whether they're going to love others more than they love God. That is the bottom line of the entire book of the Bible, all of it. And it's the same question for us is where do we go to so that we can find love? Because if we don't find our love in God, and Solomon didn't, I would argue, until he gets to the book of Ecclesiastes. And then finally, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's one of the most depressing books you'll ever read. Because Solomon has everything he could ever want. All the riches, all the peace, a palace, gold, silver, multiple relationships. It is said that every Jewish person living today has Solomon's DNA because that's how many offspring he had. (laughs) Like that's, wow, (laughs) right? Like, and yet he comes to the end of his life miserable. And if we don't understand the purpose of this book, we will chase themes in this book that will end us in the same place as Solomon, miserable. Chasing a relationship, chasing stuff, chasing wisdom, chasing a a life that I want, and in the end, you're just going to be miserable. And the way that this book ends is actually very sad. The book ends with kind of, they're apart, they're not together. And they're longing to want to be together. And so as we dive back into this book, if you remember, 
The first week, we talked about the fact that Solomon talked about more delightful than, and God had Solomon write that this was the finest song, and oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than. We looked at the fact that in the Bible, it says to greet one another with a holy kiss, not a mouth-to-mouth kiss, on-the-cheek kiss, probably. And, and a holy kiss is one where you're not trying to kiss to get something. You're not kissing to try to elicit an emotion in another person. You're kissing to express your love for that person. We don't know how to do that in our culture. Our culture is all about ramping up the, the passion so that maybe she'll give some to me or he'll give some to me. It's not about initiating and saying, I love you and I'm willing to stop there. Just wanted you to know. And that's what Solomon's talking about in this first chapter, that God draws boundaries and that God says, you are more delightful than anything, and that's why there are these boundaries. That's why we looked at the next one being, don't awaken love until the appropriate time. That there is an appropriate time for everything. The Beatles sang that, right? Time for everything. By the way, they stole that from King Solomon, because he wrote it, and then they wrote a song and made millions. Okay, so... There's a time for things. And in marriage, when you commit and the families commit to one another and everybody says yes, now it's time. It's an appropriate time that God has established. And we looked at that. And all through the book, you see this. It's gonna, we're going to see it again today. These words that say, I charge you. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. And we talked about the fact that we're still waiting for Jesus to come back and love us fully. He hasn't come back to bring his full love yet because when Jesus comes back to bring his full love, he also has to bring his full wrath against those who don't love him and who hurt those who do love him. And he's not ready to do that yet because he's calling people to love him more than anything else. And he's being patient. We looked the next week and how beautiful you are. And, and now that they're married, now that you have this relationship, you see, or they're getting, they're being married. This is the marriage ceremony. We see the king. We see God telling people who have surrendered, people who have waited, people who have done it God's way. He's saying, oh, you are so beautiful to me that I know you, that you're in a relationship with me. And then last week, Mark did a great job of talking about what friendship looks like. That they were married, and then they had to separate. The king had to go do, do work. Jesus is in heaven. The, the whole thing that happened, and yet there's this concept of, of a relationship, of a friendship that's more than just romance and sex and all the stuff we see on TV. You know, I always, whenever I watch a romantic comedy, the first thing I always think of is, okay, I want to see the 10-year sequel. Never had one, not once. They never create a 10-year sequel. You know why? Because most marriages don't last that long because people don't have this kind of love. They have a false kind of love. And, and if you could just get one person to have the kind of love that God has that says, I want nothing from you, I just want to give myself to you, we could solve a lot of problems. But that's not how we are. And that's exactly what they're struggling with and we looked at and Mark did last week. If you remember, Mark talked about simple things in marriage, like carrying things up the stairs, right? Rock's foot is broken because Mark didn't carry stuff up the stairs. Look, I mean, it's awful. She tripped, I'm just... I'll let you find out the truth. So, so they're still friends. They're still sitting beside each other, okay? Like, this week, what I want us to look at is his desire for me. Do you believe that God desires you? 
Not in a sexual weird way. Because that's where our culture has taken the sexual edict and the sexual ethic and we've turned it into something God never intended for it to be. And we use it as a tool and a weapon and it's terrible. Terrible. I've told you before, when I do premarital counseling with couples, I always tell them, look, before, first of all, if I'm going to do premarital counseling with you, I need you to be abstinent for the entire premarital counseling. And if you haven't been abstinent, you need to repent. We have that conversation because it's not doing it God's way. And if, here's the deal. If you don't learn to find a desire for one another outside of sex, you know what's going to happen when you can't have sex in marriage? You're going to begin to question the other person's desire for you. And you're going to be questioning your desire because, well, if she won't give me, then I can go get some. You don't think so? You know how many people divorce when things get hard and the sexual relationship begins to wane? A lot. Two biggest causes of divorce, money and sex. Statistically, whenever they talk to people, those are the two biggest causes. And we don't want to deal with them, so we run and talk about all the peripheral causes. Well, you're this and you're that, and I don't desire you anymore, and I don't desire you, and I throw you off, and that's what we do. And God is trying to get our attention and say, look, I'm looking for people that will desire me so that they, look, this is important, so that you can go out into the world, you can go into a marriage, you can have children, and your desire will not be for them, but your desire will be for them to desire me. You won't use them, you won't manipulate them, you won't be about them, you'll be about me. But if you have the wrong desire to start with, it will catch up with you. The 10-year sequel will be a mess. Because after 10 years, we really see what our real desires are. Look, it's easy to fake it up front, right? That's why people say, well, you should live together before you get married. Listen, those that live together before marriage have a 75% greater chance of getting divorced than those who don't. Those are just statistics. I'm not making, that's just the way the world works. Like, oh, and by the way, if you're living together before marriage, you're saying that my desire is for you, but my desire really isn't for you. I don't want to give myself fully to you. I want to try this out and take it for a test drive before I fully commit. Oh my gosh, if you start there, it doesn't end well. Versus saying, I'm all in, cards on the table, everything I have is yours. I... See, that's what Jesus did for us. He came from heaven to earth, laid it all on the table, and died for us. He didn't come down from heaven and like walk around the earth and like zap people and kill people and be like, now I could kill more. I could do more. I'm like playing this game with you. I'm kind of living with you, but I'm still God. I'm still getting... He came down fully human, fully God, and paid the price for us. So as we dive back into Song of Solomon, we find ourselves back in the story. We find a woman who's still longing because the husband's gone and she rejected him and they're trying to come back together and she's pushed him away. We looked at that last week and his response was one of love. And now we find them distant again. You have to remember Last week, Mark didn't mention this, but when the woman delayed in meeting up with Solomon, you have to understand that in making that decision, at this time, most scholars believe he had 140 other concubines and wives he could go to. You see, sometimes God will come to us 
And he will offer us things and he will say, hey, I, I want you to know this. And if we say, nah, 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 okay, he'll give it to the next person. Now, I'm not saying Solomon was right in having all those wives. The Bible specifically says that was stupid. And we all do stupid things, and that's why Jesus died for us, and that's why Solomon had to look for a Messiah someday that would save him because he couldn't save himself. That's what he figured out in Ecclesiastes. And we're in the same boat. So we dive in. Here's what it says in Song of Solomon 6, 9. It says, but my dove, my virtuous one, is unique. She is the favor of her mother, perfect to the one who gave her birth. Women see her and declare her fortunate, queens and concubines also, and they sing her praise. And so you have to remember, she knows she rejected him. There's this tension in their relationship, and he comes back and looks at her and says, I still love you. I still see you as cherished. I see you how you don't see yourself. I see what you could be. I see what I want you to be, not just what you want. And that doesn't mean an earthly, like, huge benefit. It's, it's for us in Christianity, it's, it's deeper, it's longer. And remember, whenever he mentions the word dove, you have to remember what a dove was. We sang about a dove in the song, coming down the dove, resting on Jesus. It was an image of the Holy Spirit, right? The dove was also the sacrifice of the poor. They didn't have to do a lamb. They could go out and catch a dove and bring that as their sacrifice to the temple. That to a poor person, the dove was the beautiful sacrifice that points to God. And so he's looking at her and, and he, he's trying to get her to see that even though he said no, even though he walked away, even though there's this tension, I need you to see yourself as I see you. Because if you don't, and if you don't see yourself as I see you, you're going to go to very dark places. And I think that's where this passage kind of goes. In Revelation 19.9, this is the end of the book of the Bible. It's the last book of the Bible talking about Christ coming back. This is the very end when all the judgments have come back. Now that God is reestablishing his kingdom, he said to, the, to me, right, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. Remember, he said in Solomon, they are fortunate. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Do you believe the word of God? Do you even know the Bible? Do you even read it? Or do you just believe what you feel, what you think, what scientists say? You know, it's always funny to me when people say, you need to follow the science. Which science? Which scientists? You know they disagree, right? Like, take any issue today. Take an hour. Go online and Google search. Don't take the first 10 searches. Like, go to the 20th search. Because the first 10, they're the ones that paid for the most ad time right? They're the popular searches. That's how the algorithm works. Go to the ones that aren't so popular and look at those scientists who have credentials who argue about a topic you don't know about. We're realizing that we don't agree that science isn't like this thing where it's like, oh yeah, science, check. Oh, this, I, we changed our science. Oh, oops. Now, now what do we do? Like, God doesn't change. He's been the same throughout all of Scripture. He never changes. He's constantly saying, this is who I am. This is who you are. Now you have to make a decision about that. that that's the theme. And it's the same thing here. In Revelation, it's the end. And he says, look, God is inviting you. He desires to have a relationship with you. He's inviting. But if you say no, if you say on my terms, I'll come when I want to come, be careful. 
because you're going to go after other desires. Goes on and says this, the women respond of Jerusalem and they say, who is this who shines like the dawn, as beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awe-inspiring as an army with banners? You know, this can be confusing to us because we don't look at armies with banners and think, oh, that's beautiful. We think, "Uh uh-oh, war's going to happen, people are going to die, right? But see, he says, who is it that shines like the dawn? Well, we know scripture says the one that shines like the dawn is God himself. He's beautiful as the moon. This is a description of, of God and his church, his people. And he's saying it should inspire us to see people who desire God above all else. It should inspire us when we hear God calling people to desire him more than anything else. That should inspire us to want to fight for the hearts and souls of other people. When we find out who we really are in Christ and his desire for us, it should inspire us to take up the banner, man, like Braveheart on the horse, riding back and forth and being like, here we go, right? Like, that sh- it should inspire us. The problem and the reason we're not inspired is because we keep chasing other desires and we won't stop at, I just need him. Nope, I need him, and I need that, and I need this, and I need that, and all over the place. And God's like, okay, go ahead. I'm just going to keep telling you who you really are. You're nothing without me. You'll perish without me, but you can have a life and have it abundantly with me. It's your choice. You're either for me on one side of the army with banners, or you're against me with the other side of the army with banners. There's a story in the Old Testament of Joshua when the people come out of the promised land. And this is important because we're going to look at this in a story before this earlier. Joshua is getting ready to go out to battle and he approaches and there's the angel of the Lord. Some believe possibly it was Jesus himself who's standing there with a sword. And Joshua falls before him is like, oh no. And the angel of the Lord, and Joshua asks an important question. He says, are you for us or against us? And the angel's response was, neither. Neither. I'm for him. Now the question is, Joshua, who are you for? If you're for him, then we're going to carry this banner together. If you're not, it's not going to go well for you. And it's the same for us. We shouldn't be looking and saying, who's for me? Who's against me? We should be looking and saying, who's for him? And if they're for him and they truly are for him and it lines up in their lifestyle and how they live and the choices they make, man, I want to be with that person. I want to connect to that person. Not because of how they make me feel, but because of who they point me to. It goes on and says this. In Numbers, this army with banners is important. In the book of Numbers, this is how God told his people to behave with one another. Look at this. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Remember, they've been delivered out of slavery. They're now getting ready to go into the promised land. They have to organize this huge group of people that have left, right, Egypt. And they have to organize them. And they organize them around the tabernacle, the worship center. And they have to organize by tribe around it. And they have boundaries that they have to obey. They can't cross the boundaries. They have to stay in their bounds. Also hard to do because it says that when you need to use the bathroom, you have to take a spade for yourself. It stays by your tent. You take that spade. You carry it outside your camp. That's a long way, right? You have to dig a hole in the ground, poop in it, and then cover it back up so that the Lord... Lord's camp will not be defiled. That's what Deuteronomy says. By the way, that's very scientific and very wise. 
The other cultures just pooped on the ground. It ran into their waterways. Cholera broke out and millions of people died and it still happens today. And all people need are spades to bury their poop. God told him to do that a long time ago. We have like toilets to bury our poop. It goes whoosh and it's gone and it goes outside the city, right? We got smart and being like, we can make automatic toilets. I mean, we don't got to dig a hole. It's like there, whoo, gone, right? But then we have to purify that water. You see, God's rules, his laws, what he's trying to do in the Old Testament is to protect us. And if you looked and said, well, I can just go poop on their land. I don't really want to go outside the encampment. I'll just go poop on Judah's land. <laughs> I'll dig a hole in his land and then I'll run back over and be like, oh, I don't know who did that. You see, we don't like boundaries. We see a boundary and we're like, I wonder how close I can get to that. Or, I wonder how fast I can get through it. Right? We don't look at a boundary and think, I wonder if that's loving. I wonder if that's caring. I wonder if the person that made that law really cares about me and cares about other people. I've really never considered that. Maybe I should pray about that. Maybe I should ask God. Maybe I should ask others about how loving this boundary is. No, we don't do that. God does. Here's what he says. The Israelites are to camp under their respective banners, beside the flags of their ancestral houses. That means they have to be under authority. You're going to be under the house that you were born in. You're going to do what you're told. He says, they are to camp around the tent of meeting at a distance from it. In other words, don't get too close. You're going to camp around it the whole nine yards. Then it says, the Israelites did everything the Lord commanded Moses. They camped by their banners in this way and moved out, of, out, moved out when they went to fight the same way. Each man by his clan and by his ancestral house. They had boundaries. I'm not going into their marriage. I'm not going into the marriage. I'm staying in mine. I'm staying in my lane. This is what God's called me to. I may not desire it. I may not like it. But this is what I said yes to. This is what I'm... And when they didn't do that, you want to know what they did? They fought and killed each other. And Solomon's two sons create the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and they war against each other, and it's a disaster from then on out. Because we look at this and say, well, that doesn't seem very loving, just because God said there's a boundary line there, and their banner's prettier than our banner. Our banner doesn't have a lion on it. Judah has a lion on his banner. We have like fruit on our banner. I don't want to be the fruit of a loom guy. I want to be the, the lion guy. I want to go over to the Judah banner. That's what we do. Because we don't believe that God desires to love us and that what he tells us is true. We question everything. We don't go, okay, I want to believe this. I want to believe God. I want to know this. At this point, the Israelites do what's right. Later, they don't, and it costs them dearly. Look at this in Isaiah it says that one day when Jesus returns, it says on that day the root of Jesse will stand. This is talking, this is a messianic prophecy. Isaiah 11 is talking about when Jesus, his second coming, when he would come someday. And it says, the root of Jesse, Jesse is David's father. Interesting, it doesn't say the root of David. It says the root of Jesse. I love that. Right? Jesse's a nobody. Except to God. Everybody loves David, the Goliath killer, right? The giant killer. There ain't no David without Jesse. You better give Jesse some credit. So God does. The root of Jesse will stand as a banner 
for the peoples. The nations will seek him and his resting place will be glorious. On that day, the Lord will extend his hand, his hands, that's personal, that's, that's I'm touching you, a second time to recover, a second time. He's prophesying one time, the first time Jesus is going to come, and then he's saying he's going to come a second time. And then he says, remember, this was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came the first time. And then he gives all these nations of of where God's going to gather his people from, the remnant of his people who survive. He will lift up a banner for the nations and gather the dispersed of Israel, the dispersed of God's people. For he will collect the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. He says that Isaiah's like, look, there's going to come a day when the marching orders come and there's going to be a banner and are you looking for that banner or do you keep going to another one? Are you looking for the, do you understand that, you, that you're a part of this family, that clan, that if you have a relationship with Jesus, you're in his family. Are you looking for his family or are you chasing everything else? Because if you're chasing everything else, you're not looking for the banner and you might miss it. goes on in Revelation and says this, the city doesn't need sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory illuminates it. Remember when these women, young women are singing, they're saying, look, look at the beauty of the, of the illumination and its lamp is the lamb, the lamb that was slain. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Can I just tell you, the purpose of a banner is to get everybody's attention. That's the purpose of a banner. It's to make sure everybody sees what you're about. Most of us don't even have a business card in our relationship with Jesus, much less a banner. If people looked at our life, they would look at our life and go, I don't see a banner for Jesus. Do you even know him? We're afraid to give our business card to people, much less walk around with a banner. And it says, look, God raised up Israel for the purpose to be his banner to the world, to say, look at how these people love me. Look at how they obey me. Look at how they want me. And they failed miserably. And God intended for that to happen so that we could be encouraged when we were failures that God still holds his covenant. He still loves his people. He'll still raise up the root of Jesse. He'll still be faithful even when we've failed in our desire. That's amazing. And that is no other God on the face of the planet that's like that. None. He extends his grace. Song of Solomon goes on to say, the woman now speaks up. She says, I came down to the walnut grove to see the blossoms of the valley, to see if the vines were budding and the pomegranates blooming. Before I knew it, my desire put me among the chariots of my noble people. In other words, she's longing to be with Solomon. With this man, she's longing, she's looking, like, is it time yet? She's looking at the seasons. I know when he comes back. I know when he might come and see me. Listen, you can tell what your desires are because you're thinking about them. Hello, right? We we think about what we desire. If you don't think regularly about God and him coming back and his desire for you and how he wants you to live in terms of your time, talent, treasures, and the stories that you tell and the stories you're making with your life, I question your desire for him and I question if you even know him. Not because I don't love you, not because I'm judging you, 
Because I'm concerned that you're carrying an enemy's banner. And that scares me for you. It's if, you if you don't confront me, if you see me, and it looks like I'm carrying another banner, and you don't confront me, do you love me? Do you love me enough to confront me and be like, Matt, what is going on with your life? Do not carry that. He goes on, he says, my desire was among my people, among the chariots of my noble people. God's people were commanded to not have chariots. They were never to have chariots or horses. They were to trust their God, right? She's falling back. She, she's looking at her desire and she's thinking about her life and she's like, well, if I can't have him and I'm waiting, well, then I'll just go back with my people. I'll hang out with my people. I'll, I'll go back there. And guess what? It gets recognized because in the next passage, it comes back and the young women cry out and say, come back, come back, Shulamite, come back, come back that we may look at you. Remember, she's different than all the other brides. Most scholars believe she was probably black. Okay? Most of his other wives probably weren't. She was a special, different kind of woman. She was a woman that worked in the fields, not like the, all the other princes that were, and princesses that were brought to Solomon. She was one that Solomon found and plucked out. And here these women are crying out and saying, come back, come back. But here's the deal. They're not crying out because their desires for God. We'll see that in a second. They're crying out because she's like the trophy wife. Right? This is what we love to do. We love to cry out and say, look at our trophy relationship. Look at my trophy vacation. Look at my trophy kids. Looky, looky, looky at how great things are and how great I am. And typically there's no mention of Jesus. Or we just add a thank Jesus on the slapping on the end. You realize that God says we are to be thankful and, and find joy and give praise in trials and temptations and circumstances. We're, persecution, we're supposed to be like, I'm being persecuted. That means they look at me and see Jesus. That's awesome. It's not what we do. We look at God and say, oh, you must not love me anymore because it's so hard. I, well, didn't I tell you it was going to be hard? Didn't they, didn't they crucify me? How are you going to be any different than me? Like, I don't understand. I didn't get out of this world alive. They killed me. So what's our desire? Is our desire for, for a certain way of life, a certain picture, what we want to see? And, and oh, we want you to come back because if you go away, it looks bad for our king. It looks bad for us. And quite honestly, we like to look at you because you're just beautiful. This is like the movie stars of our day, right? We get online and see the new look that so-and-so has. And oh, look, and who made that dress? And oh, and... That's what we do. Oh, look, he, got, he gained 20 pounds for that movie because he had to get fat for that movie, but oh, look how cut he is now for his next movie that's an action film. We're no different than the culture of Solomon's day. But Solomon answers, why are you looking at the Shulamite? As you look at the dance of the two camps. He goes back to the camps, the armies, the banners. Are, are you looking at the Shulamite? You ready for this? Pay attention. Are you looking at the Shulamite? Because, whoo-hoo, they're getting ready to fight. Yeah, I'm going to not eat some meat right now. I'm going to watch this go down at that table over there. Because <laughs> it's a big one. I just heard what they said. And I'm going to go back and tell my fellow servers, like, oh, it's getting ready to go down at table eight. Like, watch this. 
But you got to watch with me. Peek around the corner, right? See, we love a mess. We love when things are... Because you know why? It makes us feel better. Makes us feel better. That, oh, they're... I'm so much better than they are. Obviously, God loves me more because my life's not as screwed up as theirs is. That's what we do. And so Solomon confronts both the wife's leaving to her people, which she probably should not have done, and he confronts the young woman, and he says, why are you guys looking for something else? Why are you trying to pick fights? Why is that... Why is no one desiring me, Solomon says. That's what God says. Why is no one thinking about me right now? She's thinking about herself. The young women are thinking about her. Everybody, who's thinking about me? He goes on, he says this, how beautiful. Are you serious? She's probably not doing the right thing. The young women of Jerusalem are probably not speaking the right way. And Solomon, i.e. God, doubles down and reminds both of them, the young women and her, you are beautiful to me. I died for you, Jesus says. I gave my life. He says, how beautiful are your sandaled feet. Now remember, before the marriage, as they were going into the marriage ceremony, remember, he looked from the top of her head down to her feet. He went this way, right? We saw that the first time. This time he starts at the bottom and looks his way up. Because in this culture, guess what was the dirtiest part of your body? Literally. They walked on dirt roads. Your feet. They were filthy. From, you got sweat, how many, okay, I'm not, don't raise your hand. Some of you have very sweaty, clammy feet, right? You do. You know who you are. If we smelled your shoes, we'd probably know who you are, Right? You've got an aroma that fills the house, right? Some of you have nice dry feet that never smell, and you don't understand why the person you're with has such smelly feet. In this culture, if you're walking around and it's hot out, it's a desert, your feet are going to have like mud toe jam all the time. You don't start at the feet. You start at the head because that's the easiest to keep clean. Solomon doesn't do that. God doesn't do that with us. He recognizes the dirt of our life. He recognizes the mess. And he says, even that is beautiful to me if you'll give it to me, if you'll allow me to have it, if your desire will be for me. So he starts at the feet and he says, how beautiful are your sandaled feet, princess. The curves of your thighs are like jewelry. The handiwork of a master. Your navel is a round bowl. It never lacks mixed wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat surrounded by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is a tower of ivory. Your eyes like pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. That makes me think she has a huge nose. I don't know about you. I don't think it does. It's just a description. These are not descriptions we would use. But if we went back to their time period and said the things we said, they'd probably be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's so rude. So we look at this and we don't think it. But this was very enduring in this time period. He's looking at every part. He's not missing a part. Because she's fled to her people thinking, he doesn't want me, he doesn't desire me, he's got another 140 other women, what does it matter? And he's coming back and saying, I even like the dirty parts. 
because I'll clean them. I'll wash them. What was the thing that Jesus did on the night before he died on the cross? What? He washed the feet of his disciples. And Peter said, oh, no, 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 not just my feet, my whole body. And Jesus is like, no, Peter, that's not what we're doing here. This is, this is metaphoric, Peter. This isn't I'm giving you a sponge bath in front of the rest of the disciples right now, right? But that's what we want to do. Oh, show me your full desire, God. He's like, no, I'm just washing your feet right now. It's good enough. You see, these imageries, because this is poetic language, in poetic language, there's all these images. It's not like, so Hebrew is a poetic language. Greek is a very Exact language. Interesting that God chose to write his law with a poetic language and chose to write about his grace with an exact language. Coincidence? I don't think so. See, God's trying to see the poetry of moving in and out, the the two camps trying to work together without killing each other because they both have weapons and they're trying to march together and go the same direction. That can lead to problems when the cavalry decides they don't want to go where the army wants them to go. It happens all the time in war. Friendly fire. Here you have him describing to her, I know you've ran away. I know these women are kind of making fun of you. They're trying to cause a fight. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth about who I am and how I see things. He goes on and he says this. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, the hair of your head like a purple cloth. A king could be held captive in your tresses. Like, you think you're not anything to me because I'm not coming to your rescue, because I'm not doing what you desire, because I'm not following what you want, but I'm doing what I need to be doing. And you think that means that you don't, you're not desirable, that that's not true. That's not true at all. I have king things I need to be doing. I can't be with you all day long. That's the world we live in. Jesus says that he has saved us, that he paid the price for our sins that we deserve. And he says, you have a citizenship in heaven. You are co-heirs with me. You are princes and princesses with me. But I'm asking you to stay here to raise the banner, to make me known, and it's going to be hard. And then someday I'm going to come back and I've given you my word so you can see who you really are to me. You can see who you really are and who you really are can be in me even though the world around you is killing you. You can see that it's worth following the boundaries of God because the payoff in the end is worth it. Because it's me. The payoff is in heaven. Heaven just happens to be where God lives. We don't try to get heaven. We want God. That's like trying to find someone because they got better stuff, right? Like it's literally like going out, try this this week, just for fun. Don't try this. Okay, so go out this week and be like, hey, I'm just wondering how much stuff you have because I'm looking for a woman or a man that has a lot of stuff and the stuff that I want. Like, it needs to be the stuff I want. Like, if you have stuff I don't want, I need you to get rid of that and I need you not to bring home any stuff I don't want. Like, right? That's the way we are. God left heaven 
to put himself in a human body, which was the plan all along, to die for us. And he asked everyone in the Old Testament to look forward to the day when he would do that. He asked everyone in the New Testament to see that he was doing that. And he asked all of us to look back to when he did it and when he's coming again. It's one story from Genesis all the way through, and it's this right here. In Ephesians, this is how Paul talks about clothing. He says this, finally, he's writing this book to the church in Ephesus, God's people in Ephesus, the people there are being persecuted. They're running up against problems. Their desires are trying to be twisted by false gods. Okay? He's there and he says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength. Quit looking for strength in your circumstances. Quit looking for strength in your bank account, in your education, in your knowledge. Quit looking in all the other stuff for strength. Find it in the relationship. Then he says, put on the full armor of God. So that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness. Remember, he was light. We read about now, and he's talking, Paul's talking here about the darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. In other words, there's battles you don't even understand that are going on. You know, it's amazing to me that people will say, I don't know how you can believe in all that spiritual stuff and, you know, battles happening. Yet they'll question whether they're aliens. Oh, I I think there's life on other planets. I'm not saying there isn't. I don't know what God did. I don't know what he created. But you're willing to like entertain, oh, there's aliens. I'm sure of it. But if you tell me there are angels and there's like a spiritual realm and like other places far away, far, far away, that I can't, oh, I can't believe in that. What? That's what we do. We just don't want to listen. And so Paul says there's battles being raged. And he says, this is why you must take up the full armor of God. So that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything, take your stand. He says, our tendency is to not take a stand, but to run the other way, to go find what, because taking a stand is hard. When you take a stand, right, it's like they're coming at you. That's what offensive linemen do. Offensive linemen have a really hard job. They got to take their stand against a defense that's trying to kill your quarterback, right? And it's like, you got to take your stand. And everybody's coming at you. And you got tons of people to block. And you're like, ah, right? But that's your job. And that's why not too many people want to be offensive linemen. Because they have to stand there. At least the quarterback and the running back can run around and get away from the people. Right? If the offensive lineman does that, everybody's going to be like, where did he just go? Like, ah! And he runs away. They're going to be like, what? That's not the play. Paul's saying, take your stand, but you're not going to be able to stand if your desire isn't for God first. You're going to run. You're going to run to the next thing and the next thing. And then he goes on. He says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God. Oh, sorry. Go on. Stand, therefore, with truth. Look at this. Paul's looking at the person just like Solomon was. Truth like a belt around your waist. Some of us have larger truth, some of us have smaller truth. Okay, like truth, like a belt around your waist. Truth of God, righteousness. So you can know things that are true. The question is, do you act rightly when you know them? Right? Because if, if you know the truth, or you try to do what's right without the truth, your pants fall down, right? Right? 
If you're just trying to do what's right, but you don't buckle the pants, you're, you're like, hey. And then you can't stand very well because your pants are around your ankle. Right? So he goes on, he says, righteousness like the armor on your chest. Your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. Wait a minute. I thought we were going to war. You are going to war. But see, we don't have to go fight the devil. He's coming after you. All we have to do is take a stand. He's coming. He's coming after you. If you call yourself Jesus, one of Jesus' sons or daughters, he's coming after you. And then he says, in every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. The offensive weapon that we have is God's word. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Paul says when you get ready for battle, you're like an offensive lineman. You're not looking to Braveheart running into battle and cutting people up. You're looking and saying, okay, I gotta gather everybody around me because we gotta fight as a unit with the banner of God the way he wants us to fight. And if we're not fighting together, we're done. That's what Paul's laying out here. And that's how the Romans fought their tactics. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. They fought in little blocks and they had shields. See, the devil throws arrows in. The Romans' greatest weapon was a little short sword they carried. That was their greatest weapon. And they would move like a little turtle. I said this couple like a turtle with these shields over the top and like this. And if a guy died, they just walked over him and a guy filled in that spot and they just kept getting smaller and smaller until they were a smaller turtle. And then when the enemy would come, they'd just open up their shield and go, doom, doom. And that's outside fight. And it was like a turtle just killing people. And it was slower than running into battle and being like, whoa, yeah, great. Arrows are sticking you in the top of the head. You look real smart. See, our enemy wants to fight from a distance. He doesn't want to get close. God says, you're going to get close if you want to fight with me. You want to be with me? You're going to be in close combat. Those young daughters of Jerusalem were looking for that close combat in a negative way. And Solomon goes on, he says, how beautiful you are, how pleasant, my love, with such delight. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I said I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. This is exactly what you think he's saying. Okay. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes and fragrance of your breath like apricots. Your mouth is like fine wine flowing smoothly from my love, gliding past my lips and teeth. He's like, do you not understand that I, all the things, food, wine, you name it, there's nothing I desire more than a relationship with you. I just want to be with you. The question is, do you want to leave your people and be with me? That's the question. This fruit imagery is all over the Bible. He goes on, he says, I belong, or she then responds, look at this, she gets it. It like clicks for her and she says, oh, I belong to my love and his desire is for me. Come, my love, come, let us go to the field, let us spend the night among the henna blossoms. Let's go early to the vineyards, let's see if the vine has budded, if the blossoms have opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love, the mandrakes give off a fragrance and at your doors is every delicacy. Now, as well as old. I have treasured them up for you, my love. He responds to her. He tells her 
he reminds her, and I think here, she says, oh yes, it's true, I do belong, but look at what she does. It's kind of a play on words a little bit or a play on the heart because it's kind of like she says, oh yes, I do, yes, I do belong to you, you do desire me, so now you do what I want you to do. This is what I want you to do. Here's, I want you to come to the henna blossoms. We're going to go to the field. Like, come, come now. Come on. He's like, we're seeing a minute. He's like, no. Why did you tell me all that great stuff if you're not going to give me what I want? That, that's, that's exactly where she's, she's at. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do belong to him. Yes, my desire is for him. And then immediately, instead of saying, what do you want, my love? What is your command, God? What do you want me to do? I want to find out. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to take some time to try to figure out what your will is instead of just going after the next thing. She goes into her plan. And we do this, don't we? We go into God's plan for our life. God, here's your plan for my life. Here's what I desire. I know you desire me because I just read it. You told me. So here's what I want here. You do this. Now, that's one way to see this. Another way to see it is that she really does desire to be with him. She's not trying to manipulate him. She just wants him to know how much she loves him, right? Either way, the point of this is it ends the same way. In Galatians 5.22, it says this. Remember, we were talking about all this fruit. She's talking about fruit. He's talking about fruit. We don't live in a fruit culture. None of you are like grew up in agriculture, did you? I grew up in an agriculture community, but I wasn't a farmer. A few of you may have done agriculture. You understand how fruit works and the seasons and all that? We don't do that. We can go buy bananas anytime we want. We don't have to wait for a season of bananas, right? It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, God says you can do as much of this stuff as you want for me. No law against it. Then he says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. And that's what we do. We look around and say, well, they got more love. They got more joy. Why don't I have that love? Why don't I have that joy? You have it all. You just have different circumstances. You have just as much an ability to respond and love to God in your circumstances as I do or the next person. You have just as much ability to respond in peace, biblical peace, not false peace, in relationships as much as I do, regardless of your circumstances. But see, what we do is we look around and then we start measuring all this stuff. And then we want to post how peaceful we are and how loving we are compared to everybody else. He goes on and he says, if only I could treat you like my brother, she says, one who nursed at my mother's breasts. I would find you in public and kiss you and no one would scorn me. I would lead you. I would take you to the house of my mother who taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from my pomegranate juice. His left hand is under my head and his right arm embraces me. She is like, I want him. And she's like, his left hand, like, you, get, you know what I mean? That you see it? But look at how she finishes. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, even if you want all those things, do not stir up or awaken love until the king says it's the appropriate time. Until the king says it's the appropriate time. But this is what I want. You're not giving it to me. Do you trust me? Do you love me? Is it about you? What you want? I mean, 
Is she trying to like seduce him to do her will? Because that's what we do, isn't it? See, that's what separates Christianity from every other world religion. In Christianity, you cannot get God to do what you want. Can't do it. So you say, well, then why pray? Because prayer puts us in a position where we hear from God what he wants, and it changes our hearts to what he wants, and it becomes what we want. See, all the other religions of the world say you work to get God's approval, and then you can make him do stuff on your timing. You can call down from heaven what you want. You can make him do what you want. Christianity says can't do that. Matter of fact, you deserve death. You deserve nothing. And the fact that you're not dead is a miracle. We know that scientifically too because we're in the midst of a pandemic. It's a miracle. Now, if there's a God, what would you want him to be like? I want there to be a God that's in control but is loving and extends his grace and forgives for my stupidity, that's Christianity. Every other world religion, it's you do all these things and now I can make God be who I want him to be. Not in Christianity. It's not the way it works. And see, we love this as I wrap up. I'm gonna wrap up with one passage of scripture that's really important. It's a passage of scripture that Jesus told as his first sermon he ever gave to his people. At least the first sermon we have record of. He It's this enticing that's going on. And be careful because when you say if only, you start getting in some dangerous places. If only God would do this. If only I had this. If only this would happen. You start going down that road and if you don't end up with stop, it's what God wants. You're gonna end up in some bad places playing the if only game. Jesus, in his first sermon, addressed this very carefully. See, we want our love. We want a banner. We want to show everybody how great our life is. And obviously, if our life is great, then God is with us. Look at what Jesus says. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness. Remember the shield of righteousness? What you think is right? Be, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Left hand, right hand? The embrace we just read about goes on and says, so that your giving may be done in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You don't need your sex scenes online. They're to be done in secret, in intimacy. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Oh, look how in love we are. Look at how awesome this is. Yeah, you're trying to get the approval of people. It goes on and it says, I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Oh God, I love you. Oh, I love you, love you, love you. Oh, love you, love you, love you. I love you. Just wanted you to know. It's good enough. You don't have to babble on. Then he goes on, he says, don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. See, we don't want to ask because we don't want God to tell us what we need. I've already decided what I need and if I ask, then he might tell me I can't have it so I'm just not going to ask, I'm just going to do what I want. Then he goes on and he says this, whenever you fast, don't be sad face. Fasting means not eating, by the way. It's not, not watching TV, just so you know. Right? We have this idea of fasting today. I'm, I'm fasting from wearing tennis shoes. I'm only wearing sandals. That's not fasting. That's just abstaining from wearing tennis shoes. 
okay? Fasting is not eating. That's what fasting means. You know, this, like, I'm practicing intermittent fasting. I practice intermittent fasting. I don't eat between breakfast and lunch. I don't eat between lunch and my afternoon snack. And I don't eat between my afternoon snack and my dinner. I don't. I'm very good at my intermittent fasting. Fasting's not eating, okay? So he says, whenever you fast, which means you should fast. It means there should be things in your life that are so overwhelming that you tell God, I don't need anything, even food, because I want you so much. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just taken time to say, God, I just want to take the day and fast, not because I want something, but because I just want to tell you how great you are, and I'm going to take every meal time, and I'm going to tell you how great you are. Amen. Because I don't need food. Or if I do, I'm going to be careful with how much food I need. Because I want you to have authority over my life. He goes on and he says, For they make their faces unattractive, so their fasting's obvious. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that you don't show that you're fasting to people, but your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I'm fasting. I'm sacrificing for God. I just want you to know how much I love him. No! Don't do that! He goes on, he says, this is why I tell you, here it is, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you'll drink or what your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? That's a great question. I think some of you don't believe that. I think sometimes I don't believe that. I like to boil life down to simple things. God's like, is it really that simple? And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you that not even who? Solomon, in all his splendor, was adorned like one of these flowers. For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things. That's every ad on TV. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. See, this woman gets caught in this worry that we see here. She forgets that there is a God who, there's, there's a man who desires her. and She's chasing other desires. And then when she comes around, she's like, okay, well now do it for me the way I want it done. And she says in her wisdom, Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not stir up or wake in love until the appropriate time. You have to believe that following God and what he says to do, doing simple things, obeying him and following through is worth it. You have to. And if you don't, it just shows that there's something broken in your relationship with God. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean he doesn't desire you. It just means there's something broken that he wants to fix. So I ask you, do you know that God's desire is for you and that he's so jealous for you that he's gonna keep coming after you? You're gonna be miserable without him. You're gonna chase everything. And are you willing to wait, to live your life waiting for him to come back? Are you willing, like this woman, to come around even though you don't have what you want to say, I can wait. I can wait. I can serve. I can be faithful when no one else is. I, I can do it. I'm not going to pick a fight. And even though I'm struggling inside, I'm going to keep coming back to the fact that it's not about me. And then the other question is, is your desire for him? His desire is for you. His desire is, but is your desire really for him? 
What are your other desires? What haven't you surrendered to him? And you know what? Be like the woman in this story. Be honest about it. You can be honest. You can write it down for everyone to read. Your honest, bad desires, like your desire. You, it's okay. God can take it. Tell him. But make sure you come to the place where you say, God, I'm just laying out my desires for you, but I'm going to wait. I'm no longer chasing to get what I want. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, this is just a hard passage of scripture for us to look at. It's a passage that really calls into question our own hearts. It shows this this kind of war, this battle between this couple. It shows the, the camps moving Lord, the relationships are a battle and the only way to win in relationships is to surrender fully to you. Because we might think we're winning one simple battle. We might think things are going pretty well, but what we don't realize is that we're getting ready to get flanked. We're setting up for a big fall. And so Father, I pray that you would allow us to hear this morning that that your desire is for us, that you, Jesus, came from heaven to earth, you died to pay the price, you came back to life to prove that you are who you say you are, no one else has done that. And you tell us that if we will die to ourselves, if we will surrender ourselves and live for you, that you'll be with us. And that we won't have want, we'll begin to want what you want. And that's a beautiful thing. So Lord, I pray that you would show us that this morning. If anyone here has not made the first step to make that commitment, to invite you to come into their life, to surrender to you, I pray today would be the day. And if they're not ready to do that, I pray they would take seriously why they aren't. And Lord, for those of us who say we do know you, I pray that we, just like the woman we read about here, would come back around to the fact that we can trust you, we can wait, we can live for you, we can put on the armor of God, we can allow you to produce the fruit of the Spirit in us as we walk with you and trust you for your time. We thank you, we praise you. You are sovereign, you are good, you are our creator. 